If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Romans to chapter 12 as we pick up tonight in verse 10. We're making good progress going through the book of Romans, but hopefully we're gathering information from it that will allow us to see that maybe not everything we were taught growing up is exactly how Paul intended it to be. So we're in Romans chapter 12. We'll read verses 10 to 13 and then comment because they kind of go together as a block. It says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. So what Paul is doing here is he's done with the great theological chapters, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of sanctification. Now he's trying to talk about how do we put it into practice into our daily lives. And in verse 10, he begins, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. That phrase, brotherly love, is Philadelphia. You guys know that in Greek, there's three different kinds of love. And this is the kind, even in Hebrew, that he would be trying to express, is that we treat one another kindly, compassionately, as brothers in the Lord, as friends, as neighbors. And that we treat our neighbors as we would ourselves. In honor, giving preference to one another. That is not fighting, hey, hey, give me the best seat. But rather, you take the best seat. Don't give me the honors. Let me give you the honor. Lift you up. Build you up. Not lagging in diligence. Diligence in what? Making sure we keep our houses clean. Is that the diligence? Or is it being diligent in the scripture? Diligent to follow God's commandments? Diligent to walk in the way that he taught us? Fervent in spirit that is let the Holy Spirit shine in our lives. Let unsaved people see the Holy Spirit within us and be jealous and want that which we have. Serving the Lord. What does the word serving mean? To be a servant? To obey. That's right. To serve. Remember Romans chapter 6. Let's flip back to Romans chapter 6. You are that one servant whom you obey, right? That's Romans chapter 6 verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves servants to obey, you are that one servant whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? So we want to serve the Lord. Reminds me also of Isaiah chapter 56. And of course, I'll, I'll take any, uh, any chance I can get to talk about Isaiah chapter 56. Because it talks about who from the non-Jewish world is going to get to go into the kingdom. And I think that's a very important topic. And it says in verse 6, Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him, 
to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So that's an important statement here in Romans chapter 12. Serving the Lord. It says rejoicing in hope. Hope of what? Of the rapture and the resurrection and the second coming of our Lord. Do you believe he's coming again? If you don't, you've got to go back and say, am I really saved? Because what is faith? What is faith? Faith. Hope in things not seen, but you gotta be more specific. The word faith actually means if God promised it, do you believe it? Or do you question it? Do you doubt it? It really comes from the same word as Amen. Let it be. Because I believe when God says it, it's going to take place. Patient in tribulation. Do people mock you for your faith? Do they ridicule you? Do they reject you? Sometimes even your very own families. It hurts. Well, should we turn away from our faith to make our families happy? Or our friends? No. Who's going to judge us come judgment day? Our families or the Lord? The Lord will. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. How does the Bible describe our prayers? It's like incense before the Lord. You who are parents, do you like to hear from your children? God likes to hear from his too. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Taking care of the widows and orphans. Those in poverty. Given to hospitality. Let's look at some of the cross references. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What's that? For these verses. Yeah, 10 to 13 kind of go together. It's a long sentence. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10. We'll start in verse 9 for context. But concerning brotherly love, there's that same Philadelphia. You have no need that I should write to you. Where else have you heard that phrase? You have no need to write to you. It's regarding the feasts and the festivals in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. We urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. So God teaches us to love one another. Is that just a New Testament concept? 
Or is that one of the greatest of the commandments? Even though it's from the book of Leviticus. And in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, let's not miss verse 7 since we're here. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and his flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Boy, that almost says that God's word doesn't change, huh? Yeah, imagine that. That's exactly what it says. Never, ever, ever does the word of God change. And in 2 Peter chapter 1. 5 through 11. Our messianic faith is supposed to be done in a community. A community of individuals that love each other, support each other, encourage each other. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. And has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Those are all so very important promises. So what is this that Peter says we need? Diligence. That is, we don't approach God casually. As in, well, maybe he exists, maybe he doesn't, I don't know. What, what do you think? Should we pray today? No, be diligent. Persevere. Have virtue. Add to virtue knowledge. We know from Hosea chapter 4 and 6, they were talking about knowledge of God's commandments in the Torah. 
Is it enough to know the commandments? No, we must add self-control. Satan will try and get us to break God's commandments. How long has he been trying that? Since the very beginning, 6,000 years. If we have self-control, then we need perseverance. We don't just reject the devil once. You must continue to reject the devil to get him to flee from you. And we need to add godliness. That is, walk like Messiah walked. Somebody give me one verse that says we should imitate Paul as he imitates Messiah. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. Give me one by John that says we should walk as Messiah walked. That's 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. So the Bible over and over again says look to Messiah as an example. What was Messiah's custom regarding Shabbat? He kept Shabbat. He would go to the synagogue to study the scriptures every week. What was Paul's custom? Does the Bible tell us? He went to the synagogue every Shabbat. So when it says, imitate me as I also imitate Messiah, should we follow God's commandments as they did? And if you do, you can't help but to love your brother. Let's go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Yes, that's true. We have to be careful not to participate in the sins of those that have gone astray. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Oh, if that's not asking a lot. What was Messiah's custom? What did he do when they were nailing nails into his flesh? He prayed for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Well, he called them ignorant, but he still prayed for them. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. You don't know how many times I get called things like the leader of the synagogue of Satan, an occult leader, because we don't eat pigs and put up Christmas trees. Well, hopefully someday they will understand. Matthew 5.44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love is not what we think of in English. It's not a warm, tingling emotion. Love in Hebrew is an action verb. It's to treat everyone kindly and with respect, even if they don't respect you and treat you kindly. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Let's go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Remember, if you won't forgive others, God won't forgive you either. Luke 6. Verse 28. We'll start in 27 for context because I hate to start in the middle of a sentence. 
But I say to you, who hear? Why does he add who hear? Don't most of us hear? No, it's not just listening. It's those who listen because they want to follow. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. 1 Corinthians 4.12 Is it hard? Yes, it's hard. But it's important. 1 Corinthians 4.12 I almost started in verse 11. So let's do. I just hate to read verse 11. It says, To the present hour, meaning as Paul's writing this, it's still happening. We both hunger and thirst. How could Paul be hungry and thirsty? He may well be in prison. He was in prison a lot. But... Not every place he went did people open up their homes and bring him in and give him a hot meal and a, a place to lie down. It says, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We've been made as the filth of the world, the offscoring of all those things until now. Is Paul saying, I became a, a minister to the Lord so I could live in comfort and wealth? Not at all. He's saying, sometimes I got to go hungry. Sometimes I have no place to lie down. But it's worth it. 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter three. Verses eight through twelve. First Peter chapter three, verses eight to twelve. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For, quote, he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if we respond to evil with evil, what should we expect from the Lord? A blessing, 
Indeed not. Let us go back to Romans chapter 12. We're up to verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What does that mean? That we should have empathy for one another? That when one of our brothers in the Lord is suffering, that we should weep with them? Yeah, let's see if that light helps any. Let's go to Deuteronomy 32. No, not yet. Not yet. Let's stay here for a minute. Verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. How many times have we heard that in Scripture? What does it mean to be wise in your own opinion? Proud, arrogant, self-righteous, think you know everything. Hmm. What's that? Be like, a Pharisee. Be like a Pharisee. We don't want to live that way, do we? It says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Does this mean you cannot defend yourself or your family if attacked? No. It says, as much as depends on you. Meaning, don't start the fight. And then verse 19 goes right along with it. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Rather, give place to wrath. Means let it go. Forgive. Let it go. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Where is that quote from? Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy. What a blessed book Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Who's speaking here? The Lord is. Their foot shall slip in due time. Maybe not immediately. They may not get theirs anytime soon. But remember, they have to stand before the Lord in judgment one day. And their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people. And have compassion on his servants. Let's go up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 30. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 30. Verses 30 and 31 should give us pause 
Anytime we get our blood pressure up, our anger is just starting to seethe over. Just read these verses again. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I have heard several of my Messianic brethren in the last week say that this coming fall begins the first year of a seven-year cycle. I hope they're right. Ask me in October. But judgment day comes. Go back to Romans chapter 12 verse 20. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Because vengeance belongs to the Lord. God will repay. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Is that an easy thing to do? But there's a metaphor. Heap coals of fire upon his head means bring to mind all of his sins. So he would be aware of that. That's what Briggs, whatever, Brown Driver, whatever. Brown Driver's Briggs has to say about it? Yes. Okay. Look that up. We'll go with that. No. <laughs> I just yeah. think it was interesting. It is getting to the fact that come judgment day, he's going to have to answer for all those sins and make sure that you don't have to answer for having taken vengeance into your own hands. Proverbs 25. Proverbs 25. Verses 21 to 22. This adds a, a portion of a sentence that Romans didn't include. So I want you to see that it's here. Proverbs chapter 25, beginning in verse 21. If your enemy is hungry... Give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So he is going to get his just rewards come judgment day. But you want your just rewards to be blessings. And now we've come to chapter 13. Oh, chapter 13 is full of good stuff. What's that? Especially nowadays. Especially nowadays. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. This does not say... We have to like our government. But it does say we must be in subjection to it. 
When Messiah walked the earth, was Rome kind to him? Did he lead revolts against Rome? No. He was subject to Rome's authority. Remember when they said, do we pay taxes to Caesar? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? What did he say? Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So in these days, when our government is not necessarily looking kindly upon us, I know we don't take it too far. That's coming. But as a general, we must be subject to the governing authorities. Let's go to John chapter 19. There is a limit. I just don't want to give that away yet. John chapter 19, verses 10 to 11. These are Messiah's own words. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Yeshua answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Did that release Pilate from all authority? No. That's why he said, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. But Messiah recognized that Pilate was in his position, not just by the Caesar of Rome, but because God allowed him to be in that position. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Let's talk for a moment. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who took the children of Judah captive, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and God gave him a dream. A dream that he had night after night after night and was driving him out of his mind. And he called all his wise men, his necromancers together around him and said, tell me the dream and its interpretation. And they said, oh, that's too hard, king. Tell us the dream and we'll lie to you about the interpretation. He wasn't buying it. So he said, just kill them all. And then Daniel heard. Daniel came to the king and said, there's a God in heaven who can tell you the dream and its meaning. And did. And what had Nebuchadnezzar dreamed? He saw a great idolatrous image, didn't he? Image of a man. Many, many feet tall. I forget exactly what it was. 75 feet, something like that, really tall. The head was of gold, which represented Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. The chest and arms of silver, which represented Medo-Persia that would overthrow Babylon. The belly and thighs of brass, which represented the Macedonian or Grecian empire that would overthrow Medo-Persia. And then the two legs of, of iron, which represented Rome, which would overthrow Greece. 
So in the vision, God showed him the four major world powers that would control the world from that time until the Messianic kingdom gets established on earth. And Nebuchadnezzar, being ever so grateful, promoted Daniel, right? Gave him a high position in the kingdom and then built that idolatrous image, but out of entirely of gold. And how did God react to that? When Nebuchadnezzar said, God is wrong. I will rule forever. He got to eat grass for seven years. So let's look at verse 31. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass over you. Until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And gives it to whomever he chooses. So how long did Nebuchadnezzar have to eat grass like an animal? For seven years. I wonder if he was the first vegetarian. <laughs> I don't know. But for seven years. Do I think he knew what he was doing? No, I don't think he was in his right mind. He was out of his mind. But the point is, but after seven years, then he would know that God gives the kingdom to whomever he chooses. Go to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Verse 6. Second Chronicles chapter 20. And verse 6. This is Jehoshaphat speaking. What does Jehoshaphat mean? Means the Lord is the judge, is the judge. And said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you? When it says you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, it means that God puts kings in place and God takes kingdoms away. And in the same book, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 23. Remember God had named Cyrus by name 120 plus years before he was born. And said he is the one who would lead the Medes and the Persians to overthrow the Babylonians. And that's exactly what happened. So verse 23 are the words of Cyrus, king of the Medes and Persians. So thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. All the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. 
Let's look also at the book of Acts. I think that's chapter 17, verse 24. Acts chapter 17, verse 24. It says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He is the God of heaven and earth. He controls it all. Yes, ma'am? Second Chronicles 36, verse 23. Thank you. Yep, and now we said there's a limit, and that's in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. What if the government orders you to break God's commandments? Acts chapter 5, verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. So there are a lot of new laws going on in the books. Should we follow them? We should unless what? Unless following them would break God's commandment. For whose commandment is higher? That of man or that of God? Let's go back to Romans chapter 13, verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. This answers the question that I've heard so many times in my lifetime. Why didn't Yeshua just defy Rome? Why didn't he lead the people in revolt to Rome? Couldn't he have led 10,000 angels and just overthrown Caesar? Freed the children of Israel and the nation from Roman rule? If he could he have. That, if he did that, we would still have to have sacrifice and have ourselves covered, not removed. Yeah, we would have all kinds of problems, wouldn't we? God ordained the nations of the world to rule from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome for a reason. Whether we can see the reason or not is not important. God knows the reason. And Messiah humbled himself and obeyed God, and God put these authorities in power. So he yielded up even his life to the justice of Rome, knowing that what Satan meant for evil, God used for the salvation of mankind. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. I was about to say, I wonder if Paul would write this same thing today. But at least historically this was true. You were in trouble with the government when you did evil. But what does Isaiah say? Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. 
So we may come to the point today where we have to stop and ask ourselves, can we continue to follow every law that gets promulgated? Or is there a point we have to draw the line and say, no, this would cause us to violate God's commandments? But it, Ahab and Jezebel were very evil, and yet God allowed them to rule. Yeah. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. That's a general statement. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. I mentioned it a minute ago, but I like to always put the verses with it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That is Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. If you've been watching the Prophecy Update top news headlines, the last few will just turn your stomach with the things that are going on. It's so hard to watch. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6, verse 18. No, it's different from J.D. Frog's Prophecy Update. It's Prophecy Update, top news headlines. They're, they're in some places in the United States now giving classes to six-year-olds on how to put on drag shows. You know, stuff like that, it, it just turns my stomach when I see it. Yeah, at Langley, they just decide to have a big drag show. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 18. Yes, ma'am. I know. It breaks your heart, doesn't it? Deuteronomy 6, 18. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. What does God call us? You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. So long as we're doing what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, then the scriptures say we should not have to fear our own governments. Yeah, Deuteronomy twelve twenty eight. Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. How many times do we hear that the commandments were temporary? They're only for Israel, only for that land, only for a little while. 
How many times does God say forever in the Torah? Over and over and over again. Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah is part of the return from the Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 9. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? So the surrounding nations that were not friendly were trying to push the children of Israel into rejecting the commandments of God and living like they do. We have to go no farther than Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, where the Apostle Paul says, do not walk like the Gentiles walk, doesn't he? So what does that mean? Should we walk in the sins of the world? The answer is, of course not. So let's go to Micah 6.8. What's that? Mejanoito, right. Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8. Micah, chapter 6. Come on, Micah. There you go. Chapter 6, verse 8. This will sound an awful lot like Ecclesiastes 12. He, that is the Lord our God, has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? To do justly means to walk according to God's commandments. Treating others as you would want them to treat you. To love mercy is to be willing to forgive others as we want God to forgive us. To show them the same kind of loving kindnesses that we want God to show us. And to walk humbly with your God. Back to chapter 13. Verse 4. If the midwife had not disobeyed Pharaoh. If the midwife had not disobeyed Pharaoh, where would we be? Mm-hmm. But that's where you get into Acts chapter 5. There's a limit to how far we follow governmental commands, right? Mm-hmm. Killing babies would not be. Killing babies is, is high on God's radar of thou shalt not do's. Yeah. Have you all heard Jonathan Kahn's teaching from July where he lined up all the dates of the abortion on demand in the United States and COVID 50 years later? I mean, on January 22nd, 
this happened to allow abortion in, in New York. On January 22nd, 50 years later, was when COVID hits. And he goes through date after date after date. This Roe v. Wade was this date. This is what happened in COVID. And it just lines up perfectly. How does God feel about murdering innocent children? Not kindly. I wonder if we can find it. Let's go back to Leviticus. Yep, he said that it'd be better to tie a millstone and be cast into the sea than to offend one of these little ones who believes in me. But in the portion of scripture where it talks about eye for an eye, if you harm a woman with child and the child is injured, Where is that exactly? Um, if we don't find it quickly, we'll come back to it. Exodus 21. Exodus 21. Exodus 21. Yes, it is. Exodus 21, verse 22. And let's see what the English does not convey. Exodus 21, verse 22. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. He shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, that's talking about to the child. You shall give life for life. Do you see that? The Hebrew does not say life for life. It says nephesh for nephesh, which is soul for soul. It says that unborn child has a soul. Did you see that Georgia, uh, personhood was upheld? So that... Um, you get a tax deduction? I did see that. Okay. Back to Romans chapter Hello, 13. Yes, ma'am. Right. I think Jeremiah 2.34 is talking to it as well. Jeremiah 2.34? Yes, I think so. Let me go look. Jeremiah 2.34. Also in your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. Yeah, I'm talking about child sacrifice, which is what abortion comes down to. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2. Yes, ma'am? I think it's in numbers. I want to say maybe five. Not sure. But it's where people try to use it to say that God is uh, basically okay with abortion. Something like, I guess, if, uh, you know, where the if a, lady, if a woman had been on uh, adultery, she'd drink the bitter ashes. Or, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. 
it, but you're just going to make me angrier. Whenever preachers use the Bible to try and say God is okay with abortion, it just drives my blood pressure up. So, yeah. Okay. Back to Romans 13, verse 4. For he, that is the ruler put in power over us, is God's minister to you for good. That is, God requires of the person in charge to be a good person executing God's laws. And when they're not, who do they have to answer to? They have to answer to God. So it goes right along with, uh, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. It says, But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. This word evil is an interesting word. It is the Greek word kakon, K-A-K-O-N, which is Greek word 2556. And I want you to see how it's translated in Matthew 27. Because it's not evil as in sin exactly. Matthew 27 verse 23. Then the governor said, why what evil has he done? In some translations it's translated, what crime has he done? And that's what this word evil is. Is what crime. So in Romans they're saying if you are committing crimes, be afraid of the government. If you're not committing crimes, you should not have to fear the government. And if you do have to fear the government when you're not committing crimes, then the government needs to be in fear of God. Let's go to Mark 7, 21. Mark 7, 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. That's that same word, evil. Adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, etc. So wickedness begins in the heart. There's a heart problem. The heart is not true to God. And that's where evil begins to boil up. We see it also in Romans 2.9. Romans chapter 2 verse 9. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, meaning the Gentile. So back to Romans 13, verse 5. What does God tell us to do? It says, therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. That is, we should be good citizens. 
so that we will not be found contrary to God's word. But there's a limit, and that is don't follow the government into sin. So where the government is being good and righteous, be a good citizen. Verse 6, for because of this you also pay taxes. How did they know we'd have to be paying taxes? But yeah, governments like their taxes, don't they? For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. I'd like to make a joke and say, yeah, the very thing is collecting more taxes, but that's not what it means. That they're collecting taxes so that they can rule in a nice, benevolent, godly manner. And let's just pray that someday we see a government that's like that. When Messiah returns, that's when we'll see a government like that. Let's go to Matthew 22. Verses 15 to 22. There are times I'm sure that we've all sat back and said, should I keep paying taxes to this government? And then I remember they asked Messiah, should we still pay taxes to Rome? And he said, yeah, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of man. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They think that no way, no way Messiah can answer this question that isn't going to be wrong. If he says, don't pay taxes, Rome is going to intercede. If he says, pay taxes, then the Jews are going to revolt, they think. But what does he say? But Yeshua perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. He said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. He said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What a beautiful answer. What is made in the image of God? You are. You and I are made in the image of God. So what do we owe God? Everything. All that we are, all that we have belongs to him. And how did they respond? They left. Matthew 17, verses 24 to 27. Were the Romans the only one that collected taxes? Nope. There was also a temple tax. How much was it? Half a shekel, Half a shekel for every adult man every year. Verses 24 to 27. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. 
When you come to the house, Yeshua anticipated him saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Yeshua said to him, Then the sons are free, nevertheless. Lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. When you've opened its mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Oh, that is so insightful. Did Yeshua owe taxes to himself? No. So why did he have Peter pay the tax? Lest we offend. Didn't want to cause offense. Sure. Why didn't he just say, well, you know, we just collected 10% from everybody in the village of Umpty Ump. Just take some money out of the bag. Didn't they pass the offering plate everywhere they went? No. They passed out baskets. They passed out baskets full of food. So they had to go find a fish. And wouldn't you know that the fish just happened to swallow a coin that would pay the temple tax for the two of them. You got to love the way God provides. Let's go to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. Whenever you think God's not watching, you're wrong. Ezra chapter 7, verse 24. Also we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. So this was the commandment of King Artaxerxes to Ezra as he's allowing Ezra to go back and rebuild the temple. Shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. So could Messiah have just pointed back to this and said, I don't have to pay? Yeah, but he didn't, did he? He said, Nethanim were those Gentiles who had volunteered to help in the temple. They did things like cut wood and do other manual chores. Were they Gibeonites? Perhaps. At least some of them. It's just a general category for those Gentiles who had dedicated themselves to serve the temple. They couldn't be priests, they couldn't be Levites, but they could do water carrying and cutting of wood and other tasks. They were not pagans. They would have been Ger Hashar, a stranger in the gate. Those like Ruth, who wanted to serve the Lord, to worship him. And when they went into captivity, they didn't have to come back to Judah to help with rebuilding the temple. But that's where their heart was. They wanted to, and God permitted them to. So they were grafted in. 
they were grafted in. Yep, yep. You hear a lot of things. How many times did Messiah say, you've heard it said? But then he'd say, but I tell you it's written. So by today's standards. By today's standards. Would they be considered converts? Would they be considered converts? No. They would be like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, where they're described as God-fearers. God-fearers were also called half-proselytes. They did not become Jews, but they served God anyway. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. That means if I love my wife, the commandments are all abolished because they're fulfilled? No, of course not. What it means is that if you love, you will not break a commandment. You wouldn't want to hurt somebody that way. Do you steal from somebody you love? No. Do you covet from somebody you love? No. You can just down, go down all the commandments. If you truly love someone, it means you treat them in a godly manner, in a righteous manner, in an upright manner. And that's what God would have from us. Yes, ma'am. You want to know which fulfilled this is? Let me grab my Greek right here. I should have anticipated that question. Romans 13, verse 8. Let me remember how. It's not that one. I'll get back to you. I have Plurero, G4137. You think it's from Plurao? Uh-huh, G4137. Okay. Plurao, the same one that is used in Matthew 517. Where it says plurosai. Chapter 5, verse 17. Yeah, meaning if you truly love your neighbor, then you truly are understanding the commandments. How do you spell plurao? Plurao, P-L-E-R-O-O. The next to last O is short, the last O is long. Plurao. Okay, and thank you, Karen. Okay. Let me look at that one more time. Because it for also means fully preached. Yeah. Okay. All right. What's that? I said it's self-explaining in here. 
Yeah. What you got to understand is that the word love in Hebrew is an action verb. It's how you treat people. It's not whether you have warm fuzzies in the heart. Now verse 9. Is this written before or after Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection? After. A long time after, right? For the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. Does he say for the old commandment? For the commandment that used to be? No. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, which means and all the other commandments, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Is you shall love your neighbor as yourself in the Ten Commandments? It is not. So for those who say the Ten Commandments are the only commandments, they're not even the greatest of the commandments. All of those are in the, in the commandments, in the Ten Commandments, yes. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself is Leviticus 19.18. Not even in the same book. <clears throat> Go to Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance. Oh, there's that vengeance again. Nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Matthew 19. Oh, I know I didn't look up that. Fulfilled, because in verse 10, we're going to do a whole litany on it. Hold it, litany of verses. Matthew 19, 16. Through 19. Look how many of the words are read. It says in verse 16, Now behold... One came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Do you want eternal life? How many out there want eternal life? This question should interest you. So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. I've heard people say, Here, Yeshua says he's not good. No, that's not what he says. He says, Do you realize I'm God? But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. What did Messiah say? If you want to enter into life, what? Keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Yeah, I hear that a lot. Yeshua said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Are all these from the Torah? Yes, they are. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That last one, love your neighbor as yourself, is not in the Ten Commandments. 
but it is in the Torah. And God, through Messiah, says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four to forty. Let me let you stop turning pages, and we'll go on. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law, in the Torah? Yeshua said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Where's that from? That's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the Vayahapta. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was from Leviticus 19. So neither one that Messiah cites as the greatest commandments in the Torah are in the Ten Commandments. So what does that do to the argument that only the Ten Commandments are the law? On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, meaning everything that teaches commandments of God can be summed up to Treat the Lord your God with faith and love and treat your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't mean the others are done away with. It means the others explain those two. Do you steal from one you love? Do you kill one that you love? No, you can just go down the list. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled. This is from Plerao, that same one, P L E R O O. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does that mean if you love your neighbor as yourself, the other commandments are gone, you can now murder him or her? No, of course not. It means that if you truly love them as you love yourself, you will not break any of the commandments toward them. Then in James chapter 2, I thought Romans was the book everybody cites to say the commandments have been abolished. I don't see it, do you? James 2.8 If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. 
For he who said, do not commit murder, also said, do not murder. I'm sorry. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? What he's trying to say is, if you don't keep the commandments, is because you don't have faith. But our point in coming here was, verse 9, if you show partiality, then you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Now to verse 10. Oh, I've been just chomping at the bit to get verse 10. Romans 13, verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And like I said, that's why I didn't chase fulfilled on verse 8, because I wanted to do it here on verse 10. This word in verse 10 is the noun form pleroma, P-L-E-R-O-M-A, pleroma. And it simply is the noun form plerao. And I want to look at the different verses where that word is used here. One's the noun and the other's the verb. Yeah, in Hebrew, the nouns all come from verbs. So the verb work gives you the noun servant. The servant is one who works for another. The word shamar is to guard, and the word shomer, guardian, is the noun that comes from shamar, guard. And that's how the Hebrew language works, is the nouns come from the verbs. So this word fulfillment, love is the fulfillment of the law. Yeah, sounds Greek to you. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 9. And I want to look at these words and it really lets us understand that the the Greek verb plerao does not mean to abolish. Matthew chapter 9, verse 16. Matthew chapter 9, verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. They didn't even translate all of the words there. It should be, no man puts a piece of new cloth onto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. So the patch, when it is put in to make it whole, that's from this same word, pleroma, 
from plurao. So it didn't abolish the garment. You put in the patch to make it whole again, to make it full, to make it fully covered. So what should be, what, should, what, is, what is missing in there? The For that which is put in to fill it up. They just translated here for the patch. They took for that which is put in to fill it up, simply the patch. So Mark 2.21. Yep, to make the garment whole again. Mark chapter 2, verse 21. Let's see if it does a better job. Again, they didn't translate all the words. It says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece, which comes from the words, the new piece that filled it up, pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. Again, the patch fills it up because it covers over the hole. Back in Messiah's day, many people only had one garment. And if a dog came along and bit you on the hiney and tore out half the robe, all you could do is patch the robe. You couldn't just run down to J.C. Penney and buy a new one. So that's what they're talking about, a patch. Maybe in Mark 8, it will be more clear because they'll translate all the words. Mark 8, 20. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000... How many large baskets full? See that word full? That's from plurao. Full of fragments did you take up? That's what plurao is getting at. It's filled up. Did the baskets go away? No. They simply got filled up with food. John 1.16 John 1.16 And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. That word fullness is this pleroma from plerao. Can we read this? And of his being done away with we have all received? No. Wouldn't make any sense at all, would it? And of his fullness. Romans eleven twelve. Romans eleven twelve. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, 
how much more their fullness. That word fullness is pleroma from plerao. So what is this talking about? Israel's fullness. What does that mean? When their acceptance of Messiah, when they all get saved. Does it have anything to do with doing away with something? Nothing at all. That's what I'm hoping this little exercise will show. Romans 11.25 For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That fullness is from Plurao. Talking about till the times of the Gentiles are complete. Has nothing to do with being abolished or done away with. Romans 13.10 That's where we jumped off from, I know. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. It no more means the law is done away with than do any of those others. And there's another sheet and a half of them, but I think that's enough to help us understand what fulfillment means. It means to have it filled full. So let's go back to Romans chapter 13, because I don't want to bore you. Verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. That makes me think immediately of John 14, 15. Because that's what Paul's getting at. I know you all can quote it to me, right? If you love me, comma, keep my commandments. So love is the fulfillment of the law because if you truly love God, you will keep his commandments. It won't be a chore. It won't be something difficult. It will be something that you want to do. And of course, in 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3, it says, What is the love of God? That we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. But let us go on to verse 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awaken out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now, 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 now. Some people think of salvation as something that happened past tense when you walked down an aisle and made a profession of faith. But this is very clearly saying that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, that salvation is something which is yet coming. That is to take us out of this world and into the messianic kingdom of peace, love, and harmony. This word time in verse 11 is a word that we have seen before. It is the Greek word chiron. The Greek word 2540. The reason it's so important that you know that is it's the same as the Hebrew word moed, which is an appointed time, as in Leviticus 23. Is that both 
It's this first one, knowing the time. So if we understand the feasts and festivals, we understand the timing of the rapture and the resurrection and the literal second coming. This word salvation in here is the Greek word soteria, S-O-T-E-R-I-A, which is Greek word 4991. And let's look at two scriptures, one that uses one and the other uses the other. First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brother, you have no need that I should write to you. This word times is the same word. Is there another word for time, like what time is it? Yes. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any point. In, right. I, yeah. mean, I just didn't know. No, you're right. And this salvation is soteria is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, meaning in our right mind, remember from last week, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Again, Paul doesn't talk about salvation as a past tense act something over and done with, but something that we yet look forward to, which is the taking us out of this world and into the Messianic kingdom. We see the same word in 2 Corinthians 7.10. 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. I wonder what some of those pastors who teach that repentance is not only not necessary, but is forbidden would think about this verse. What does repentance lead to? Salvation. So also look at Philippians chapter 2. I don't know the answer to that, but it's possible. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, who wrote this, Paul did, as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, obeyed what? The commandments of God. Does verse 12 say the way to salvation is sin? No, quite the opposite. It says stop sinning. Hebrews 5 9. 
Hebrews 5, 9. And having been perfected, he, that's Messiah Yeshua, became the author of eternal salvation to all who want obey him. Hebrews 9.28 So Messiah was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Salvation at the second coming of Messiah to bring us into the kingdom. The word salvation means deliverance. 1 Peter 1. First Peter 1, verses 5 to 10. First Peter chapter 5. I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. First Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. So salvation is not the beginning of our faith. It's the goal of our faith. It's what our faith is leading us to. So is it okay to turn away from our faith? Is it okay to turn away from God and walk in the sins of the world and will be taken up in the rapture anyway? Not according to the scriptures. Lastly, as we're running out of time for tonight, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation, that's that same word, and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Messiah have come. For the accuser of our brethren accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. According to Revelation 20.10, salvation comes at the time that the kingdom of God comes. I just found that interesting because I'd always been taught salvation is a past tense thing that happened way long ago.
And you can't lose it because it's already done. Yet all these verses speak of it as something yet to come. The last one I gave you? Revelation 12.10? Ah, you just wanted the... Okay. You're welcome. And with that, our time has expired. We'll have to pick up next week, Lord willing, in Romans chapter 13, verse 12.